Good morning. Welcome to Foothills Church. So excited that you guys are here, whether you are here in the room with us in Maryville, whether you are in our Knoxville location right now, or whether you're tuning in online. Uh, so glad that you're here. We're starting a brand new series. My name is Alex. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to kick off this series that we're calling Who is Jesus, where we are going through the Gospel of Luke and asking uh, a really important question. And in fact, I think that this question that we're asking is, is perhaps, I would say actually, no, it is definitely the most significant question that you can answer in your own life. And this isn't a new question. This isn't some revolutionary question that we just came up with in uh, recent days in our culture. This is an old question that we're asking. For centuries, people have been asking this question, who is Jesus? And, and, and the motive behind asking this question is very different for every person. Some people genuinely are asking and genuinely seeking the answer to this question, who is Jesus? And there are others who have asked this question in an attempt to destroy this man, Jesus. They wanted to exploit and take advantage of and, and do harm to this man, Jesus. And so many, many people have come up with many different answers to this question. People have drawn their own conclusions. Some people say that Jesus was just a great moral teacher. He was a great teacher. Historians would say that he is a real person who was born and lived about 30 years on this earth, that he died around the year AD 33, but he was a real person. Gandhi believed that Jesus expressed the will and spirit of God, but was not God himself. Muslims would say that Jesus was a prophet or a messenger. They would also agree with us that he is born of a virgin. But they say that he's a human who tried to bring people to worship the one true God that they call Allah. Hindus believe that Jesus was a holy man, a wise teacher, and he was one of many gods that you can choose to worship. And in reality, there are a billion other answers to this question, who is Jesus? Jesus. But in the first century AD, there was a real person who was born in a real place called Bethlehem to a woman named Mary and a man named Joseph. And this person grew up and eventually took a job as a carpenter. And one day at a wedding, performed a miracle where he turned water into wine. And people from that moment on, the question started to flood people's minds, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Apparently, when you turn water to wine at a wedding, people want to know who you are. They're like, who is this guy? And so from that moment, the first miracle is Jesus began his ministry. From that moment forward, people began to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And this question has not slowed down for two thousand years, 2,000 years later, we are still asking the question today, who is Jesus? And I believe that our soul longs for this answer. I believe that we were created to know the answer to this question. 
that we're asking in this series. And so we're approaching this question very intentionally, and we are seeking this answer very diligently. And our prayer is that you would ask this question, and really that this question would begin to dominate your mind every single day when you wake up and every single day when you go to sleep. From now until the rest of eternity, we pray that the question, who is Jesus, would be the thing that is on the forefront of your minds. So we're asking that question, who is he? Who is Jesus? And as we start this series, I would love to just pray and ask for God's help to, to show us and, and provide that answer as we seek it diligently. So let me, let me pray for us today. Father, God, we ask that you would speak to us because we want to hear you. And Father, would you show us because we want to know you. And Father, would you forgive us so that we don't miss out on any part of who you are. Help us to know who is Jesus. Amen. So we're jumping into uh, this series where we're going through the gospel of Luke and asking the question, who is Jesus? And so uh, we're going to start actually in chapter 3 of the book of Luke because if you were here for our Christmas series, we actually uh, preached out of Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. And so we're actually going to jump into Luke chapter Three And so let me give you a little context just to the book of Luke as we spend some, some time there in the, in the coming weeks. And so uh, we believe that the author was, you guessed it, Luke himself, okay? He was the author, and here's some things that we know about Luke. Uh, we believe that the Gospels were an eyewitness uh, account, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Luke himself was actually not an eyewitness to these things. What he did, uh, likely he was a traveling companion of Paul. And so what he would do is he would literally sit down and interview people that were physically there, that witnessed for themselves with their eyes the works and the miracles and the ministry and life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And so he sat down with them and, and he, he documented all of these things. And so we believe, people, scholars believe that the most complete and detailed account of Jesus' life is found here in the Gospel of Luke. He was a doctor and so he was extremely detailed. Now, the, the chances are that we, you couldn't read a single word he was trying to write down, uh, but, but he was extremely detailed in the way that he documented these things that happened in the life of Jesus, these things that Jesus did, the things that he taught. And so we actually have a very complete and detailed account here in the book of Luke. And then he also wrote the book of Acts. And so he was there uh, as part of the, the early church and, and he documented some things that he experienced um, in, at, during that time. And so uh, we, we pick up here in Luke chapter 3. Um, Verses 1 and 2 are really just giving for us a timestamp of where we are in history. It starts in the 15th year reign of Tiberius Caesar. And so really what that does is it puts us uh, on the timeline around A.D. 60 to 70, which means it was about 30 to 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, that's where we find ourselves. And so for years... Luke meets with these people and he compiles over time this account and, and, and writes this book and it's, and it's published, it's released uh, 30 to 40 years after the resurrection. And so we pick up in Luke, the second part of Luke chapter 3, verse 2. It says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. This is talking about John the Baptist. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to first, before we go any further, just highlight this, this I literally highlighted on screen, the, this idea that the word of God came to John the Baptist. And this is significant, so we need to think about what do we know about John the Baptist? Here's what we know. He was the cousin of Jesus, okay? We learned about him in Luke chapter one. He was the one that leaped in his mother's womb whenever he, he, his, his mom uh, met up with Mary. And so we see here that, that he was Jesus' cousin. Jesus himself said this about John the Baptist. He said that of all the men that are born of a woman, essentially of all humanity, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. We know that he was a prophet, which essentially just means that he heard from God and relayed that message to God's people. That's what a prophet was. Now, this was extremely significant here in Luke chapter 3 because the people during that time had not heard from a prophet in 400 years. They had not heard the messenger of God relay the message of God to his people in 400 years. To bring that into context, think about this. The pilgrims came over on the Mayflower 400 years ago. They hit Plymouth Rock 400 years ago. So think about all that's happened in 400 years. Now imagine you are, you are part of God's people and you're not hearing God's voice from his messenger for 400 years. The darkness that had to take place, the silence had to be deafening, right? There was this eager expectation. There was this, this groaning. They were getting tired of, of waiting to hear from God and tired of waiting for his messenger, tired of waiting for the Messiah. For us, it's hard to grasp because the difference between the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, is the flip of a page. But for these people, the difference was 400 years. It was generations of people that were not hearing God's voice from God's messenger. So that's where they were. That's kind of the, the, the mental place that these people were when they began to hear the word of the Lord from John. That's why it's significant when we read the words, the word of God came to John. That 400 years of silence is now broken by John's voice. But John wasn't just a prophet. John was a fulfillment of prophecy. You see, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 to 5, it is directly quoted here in Luke chapter 3. Verse four, it says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is a direct quote from Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And so John was this voice. He was the voice that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 40, the voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. John was uniquely chosen to be the predecessor of Jesus, to prepare people for his coming. And the way he does that is he references Isaiah 40. It says, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain made low. The crooked paths will become straight. Rough places will be level so that all people, will be able to see and experience the salvation of God. See, what Isaiah was saying in this moment was that 
there will be a Messiah. A Messiah is coming. And he, will, and he will be the one to save us. And so he's going to come and be with us so that, so that we don't no longer have a gap between us and God. He's going to come and he's going to be here. And all the, the valleys are going to be filled. The mountains will be made low so that everyone, there will be no hindrance to anyone who can experience and see the salvation of God. There is a Messiah who is coming. And what John was saying is there is a Messiah and he's here. And his name is Jesus And he is the one that's bridging that gap and leveling the playing field so that we can receive salvation. John's life purpose was to proclaim this message. He was the messenger. He was prophesied about hundreds of years before he was born. He was the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so when we think about it like that, like John's purpose in life is this, to prepare the way for the first coming of Jesus. Now, I wanna wanna bring us into this story because I believe that we have a similar purpose We were not uniquely chosen to prepare the way in the first century for the first coming of Jesus, but I do believe that our purpose is this, to prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus. You see, Jesus is going to return. He's coming back for his people. He's gonna complete his kingdom. He's gonna create a new heaven and a new earth. He's gonna return in victory, right? And so for us, our job, like John, is to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus, but we're preparing for the second coming. We're preparing our own lives. We're preparing our families. We're preparing those that God has put in our circles of influence. And the way we do that is by sharing what we know to be true about who Jesus is. We prepare for the second coming. And so it's funny that the, the means by which we do this is the same. John came proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sin. And for us, we prepare for the second coming in the same way. We repent and we tell others they need to repent. We do that in love and we tell them that there is forgiveness for them, from Jesus. So when John came, he didn't didn't show up proclaiming a new religion. He showed up proclaiming repentance. And the reason he did that is because Jesus didn't show up to offer religion. He came to offer forgiveness. And so John, as he prepared the way, said, you need to repent Because Jesus is here, the Messiah is here, the one that came to save us from our sins, he is here. And so we need to repent because there's forgiveness of sin. That's what Jesus came to offer. Remember verse three, we read the first part, or yeah, we read the first part, we didn't focus on the second part. So the word of God came to John, and then verse three, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He, he proclaimed a, a baptism of repentance. And so John proclaimed repentance for the forgiveness of sin. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the theme of John's life, the theme of Jesus's ministry, and the theme for Luke chapter three, as we kick off this series, the theme is this, repentance. It's what John's life was about. It's what Jesus' ministry was about. And I believe that that is what this chapter is about. And so I want us to lean in on this word and and really figure out what, what does it look like to live in this? What does it look like to experience and choose repentance. And a lot of us, uh, maybe, maybe you're a church kid, maybe, maybe you're new to church, and, uh, and you've heard repentance talked about in this way. Turn or burn. 
You need to turn from your sin or you're going to burn forever in hell. And there is some truth to that, but I hope to be able to convey this message of repentance in, in a way more like what, would, what Jesus would communicate it. I hope to communicate it in a way that's like, this is available to you. This is an opportunity for you because Jesus offers you forgiveness. And so I want to define repentance this way. It's to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. It's not enough to just eliminate some things from our life. We have to add the things of God to our life. And so true repentance is to turn from something and turn to Jesus. We're able to do that because we have forgiveness of sin. Now, I think it's interesting the phrase that he uses to bring up this idea of repentance. He says he, says he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance. A baptism of repentance. And, and when we baptize here at FC, um, and what we believe to be true about baptism uh, based on the Bible and based on our, kind of our Baptist faith is that baptism is a symbol of repentance. It's a symbol, an outward symbol of what God has done internally in our heart and our life. And so it's not the thing that saves you. It's a symbol of that repentance. Here's, here's what I mean. So when we baptize somebody here at FC, we're really intentional about the words that we use. And so we, we meet with them. We make sure that they fully understand what it means to be baptized. And then when, once they get in the water, we fully submerge them. And as we do that, we say these words. We say, buried with him in baptism. And the reason we say that is because what we're illustrating in that moment is we're illustrating that our sin died with Jesus. So if we believe that Jesus died for our sin, what we believe is we put to death our old self. It's no longer our old self that lives, right? It's Christ that lives in us. And so our old self is dead. Our sin dies with Jesus. And then we say raised to walk in newness of life, illustrating that now we have life in Jesus because he conquered the grave. Because he lives, we get to live. Because he lives, we have that eternal abundant life that he talks about. And so baptism is literally a symbol of that repentance, that turning from, right? That turning from sin, being raised to walk in new life, turning to Jesus. Now, I gave that same illustration in the 9 a.m. and I had someone tell me that I held them underwater for a very long time. We don't do that, all right? It's not like we hold you under and then let's share their story of how they came to faith. It was when they were in second grade and they're like, that's not what we do, all right? So just so we're clear, it's more of like a very quick thing, right? But, but this is a, this is a picture and it's a picture that we see in God's word of, of, of a symbol of that repentance, a symbol of that moment where we give our life to Jesus and we say, my old self is dead. I'm raised to life. I have new life in you. And so you are now my king. This is what John is teaching, a baptism of repentance. It's a call to kill sin and find life in Jesus. And I think this is interesting, though, because at the end of this chapter, we're going to fast forward just a little bit. At the end of this chapter, in verse 21, we see that Jesus himself was baptized. It says, now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, he was praying, and the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so we see this, this moment where Jesus himself is baptized. 
Now, we just said that baptism was a symbol of repentance. It was a way to model that we are dead to our sin and alive in Christ. But if Jesus himself had no sin, which we believe, he was perfect, he was sinless, then why was he baptized? Because he didn't need to repent. He didn't need to repent, right? If you're sinless, you don't need to repent from sin. And so why was Jesus baptized? I believe that he was baptized because what he was doing is he was showing us the way. He was modeling for us what this looks like. And so when we look back at kind of where we're at in our story so far, what we see is first, John was the one who prepared the way for Jesus, right? He prepared the way. He was the voice crying out in the wilderness. Hey, Jesus is coming. He has a new teaching. He has a new kingdom that he's building. This is who Jesus is. He's the Messiah and he's gonna save us. So he's preparing the way for Jesus. Now Jesus here is modeling the way for us. He didn't need repentance, but he was showing us, people who do need repentance, how do we respond? What does it look like? Why, do we, why would we choose to be baptized? He's modeling the way for us. And so now we have a responsibility. Our responsibility is this. We follow the way. John prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus modeled the way for us. And now we follow that way that he sets before us. We follow that way. And so the question is, what is what is that way? What, what does that look like? Well, well, John began to teach more and crowds began to uh, follow him and they began to want to hear more about his teaching. And so in verse seven, this is where we pick up. It said, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so he is saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is the way that Jesus has set before us. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's the theme for our verse. It should be the theme of our life. But, but they responded, in, in a, the people, the crowds, they responded in, in a way that seems familiar to me as a pastor in East Tennessee. They said to him, we have Abraham as our father. And, and, and so for them, what, essentially what they're saying is, I'm good. I'm born into the family of Abraham. My lineage is solid. It's people of faith. And I think that's the first century Palestinian version of, of the people in the South that I hear that say, no, no, no. I was born in a Christian home. I've always been a Christian. And, and if that's something that you've said, if that's something you believe that you've always been a Christian, I think there's a good chance that you're not. Because you have not always been saved. There is a moment where we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus. And then several moments after that, where we continue to do so. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. You have not always been a Christian. And he tells them, don't say to me, we have Abraham as our father. God's able to raise up stones to be children of Abraham. And essentially what he's saying is there has to be fruit or evidence of your salvation, evidence of your moment of repentance, evidence of that continued repentance in your life. That is what tells people that you're a follower of Jesus. And God is separating the real followers from the fake followers. He said that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut and thrown 
into the fire. It doesn't matter if your father was a pastor or your grandfather was a pastor or your grandmother was a woman of faith. That's not enough for you. The repentance has to be yours. No one else can repent for you. Your family can't repent for you. The, the faith of your family does not have the power to save you. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Repentance is the thing that is required to follow Jesus. And we also need to notice this. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance is not a one-time event. It says keeping with repentance. This suggests that it is an ongoing process. It is, it is an ongoing thing that happens, not a special occasion thing. It's not a, oh, I got wrapped up in the emotions during the worship set today, and so I'm going to repent and then turn around and live however I want tomorrow until the next time that I get in my feelings. That's not what, it, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about keeping with repentance. We're talking about a daily action, a daily choice that we take to turn from our sin and follow Jesus. It should be an ongoing habit in our life. It should be a spiritual discipline in our life as much as reading the Bible and prayer and fasting and solitude, repentance, confession should be as present in our life as a spiritual discipline as those things. It should be a regular occurrence in our life to turn from things and return to Jesus. So let me ask you this. I'm going to spend some time here. Is your life marked by repentance? Is your life marked by repentance? Are you defined by several moments in your life of you confessing sin, turning from sin, and turning back to Jesus? Are those the things that mark you, that define who you are as a person? That's what it looks like to live a life marked by repentance. Is that you? Is your life marked by repentance? Or was it a one-time event where you went forward and said a prayer and then nothing has changed since? So is your life marked by repentance or are you trying to market repentance? Are you trying to market that to somebody? Are you, let, let me, let me, explain what I mean by that, by asking you a question. Is the aim of your life to be like Christ, to become like Christ, or is the aim of your life to appear to be like a Christian? Because those two things can be very different. Becoming like Christ, okay, is very different than trying to appear like a Christian. This one just means you do all the right things. This one means your life is different. So many of us, put in great effort in our life to look the part and make people think that we have our lives all together, that nothing's wrong, that everything's good. We love Jesus. God is good all the time, all the time. God's good. We put in great effort to make sure that people think that we have it all together. We want our life to be marked by our success. So when others see our life, what they see is the highlight tape. They see the highlight reel. They see the good things. And so instead of humbling ourselves, what we do is we hide our failures behind these masks of success. And instead of confessing our sin, what we do is we hide it and we cover it up and we don't share it with people that are actually going to help us get out of that sin. 
We try to market a version of Christianity to others that we were never meant to live in the first place. You were never meant to live a version of Christianity that says, show up to church, do the right things, make yourself look good in front of other people, and then that's what it takes. But is that what you're trying to market? Is that what you want other people to see? And is that the extent to which you're following Jesus? You see, we're called to, and what we need in our life is a life marked by repentance. A life marked by these moments that we share with God every single day where we turn from sin, where we confess it to him, where we confess it with our brothers and sisters, and then we turn back to the things of God and we're obedient to him. That's what we need. You, you see repentance and confession in your life? It's difficult. It's not easy. I'm not going to act like this is a simple, easy thing to do. It hurts. It's painful. Sometimes the markings of repentance look more like scars, okay? Like, I, I get it. It's not easy to do. It highlights our weaknesses. It forces us to take a posture of humility. It, it, it puts the light on our weaknesses, not our strengths. We don't like that. But the good news is, the Bible says that we serve a God that when we are weak, he is what? When we are weak, he is strong. And so, and so in a lot of ways, our weaknesses, our failures point to Jesus way more than our successes do. A lot of times our successes point to us, but our weaknesses, a lot of, a lot of times people will look at that and they'll see Jesus more, clear, more clearly in our weaknesses than they do our strengths, than they do our success. And so for us, we have to be people that are willing to humble ourselves and, li and live a life marked by repentance. To bring it back to John's language, a life marked by repentance produces good fruit. A life simply trying to market that repentance produces fake fruit. So I, I want to ask, I want you to be honest with yourself. Are you attempting to sell somebody on the idea that you follow Jesus? Or are you actually following Jesus? Are you, trying to, are you just trying to market that? Look at me. I'm a Christian. I go to church. Or are you like in the trenches following Jesus? I think that's why it's important that we're asking this question, who is Jesus in this series? And so I want us to have a moment right now where we transition and we make it more personal. Don't just ask, who is Jesus? I want you to ask it, who is Jesus to me? Who do I really believe that Jesus is? And how does that play out in my life? Who's Jesus to you? Is he someone that you're just trying to market to others? Is he someone that doesn't actually live in your heart, just lives in your Instagram bio? Is Jesus, has he been reduced to an accessory on your gold chain? Or, or has Jesus invaded every area of your life? Is he the one who deserves the authority of our thoughts, of our actions, of our behaviors? Who is Jesus to you? And as the people during this time were wrestling with this this teaching that John was bringing as they were wrestling with who he was saying Jesus was and this idea of repentance and a baptism of repentance, as they were wrestling with these things, they began to ask a question that I believe is extremely uh, applicable to us today. I think we can, I think it applies to us today. In verse 10, it says that the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What do we do with this information? 
You're, you're talking about repentance. You're saying the Messiah is here. Okay, okay, John, so what do we do now? And maybe you're, you're in this room and you're asking the very same question. All right, so what? What do I do now? What do we do with this? What then shall we do? And John answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. The crowds, the tax collectors, the soldiers all asked the same thing. What shall we do? And yet they all received a different answer. But although the answer that they received was different, the call to action was the same. The call to action was repent. The call to action was soldiers, stop doing this, start doing this. Tax collectors, stop doing this, start doing this. The call to action was repent. And I think for us, you may be asking the question, what shall I do? And your answer may be different than the guy sitting next to you because every single one of us has something different that we need to repent from. Something different that, that we're struggling with. A different sin. A different form of brokenness in our life. So the the answer may be different, but the call to action is the same. It is repent. And I imagine all these different people coming up to him, the tax collectors, the soldiers, the crowds. And, and then I began to imagine, all right, what groups of people would come to him today? And what would, they, what would the, be the answer that they got? Like, like I, I imagine parents approaching John or maybe just taking it straight to God and saying, saying God, what, what shall we do? What do we do? Any parent in the room feel like that's where they're at? Like, like God, what, what the heck do I do? What am I doing? <laughs> I have a two-year-old, so I can assure you, assure you I know absolutely nothing, okay? But from what I've heard about parenthood, okay, that's kind of the case until ever. Like, that's what it is. You don't know, right? My mom used to say that experience is something that you get shortly after you need it. And so I feel like with parenting that from what I've heard, like you figure out how to raise a teenager when your kids are 30. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of what it looks like. And so uh, how many parents in the room are asking the question, man, what, what, what should I do? What do I do now? What do I do with this information? And I think that maybe the answer they would get is stop idolizing your kids and disciple them. Stop worshiping your kids and their schedules and submit to the Father who cares about them and loves them more than you do. I imagine CEOs and leaders, community leaders, asking, what shall we do? And him say, turn from your selfish ambition and use your money and your influence to glorify me. And that's it. I imagine teenagers coming and saying, well, what about, what about us? What about us? What do we do? And him saying, stop wasting your life trying to impress everyone around you and start devoting every single part of your life right now to Jesus because this is when it matters. College students asking him, what should we do? And him saying, turn from worshiping your fraternity or your sorority or your GPA or your future and start living in the present, in the presence of God right now. Empty nesters, retired folks asking, what do we do? And him saying, stay on mission. You do not ever retire or quit from engaging in the mission of God, from serving him, from serving his church. 
Keep going. And so, and so maybe those groups of people, like you don't fall into any of those. And, and so I don't know what it is that you're asking. I don't know what it is that the Lord's going to respond and say, this is what you need to do. But I imagine if you are here today and you're asking the question, God, what should I do? God, what do I need to do? I can tell you where a great place to start is. A great place for you to start, no matter what situation you're in, is repent. Different answer, same call to action, repent. There's some things in your life that you need to turn from. There's some sin in your life that you need to kill to actually begin to live the life that God has called you to live. So maybe start there. Repent. Before you try to establish your own plans, before before you try to make plans for your family, before you try to invest in something and build something for yourself, what I would do is I would say, God, what is it that I need to repent from? What is it that I need to turn from? And God, help me to turn towards you. In other words, we need to live a life marked by repentance. Repentance, this this process, not just a moment, a process every single day of looking to God and saying, God, forgive me of this sin, I turn to you. That needs to be the thing that defines us way more than any accomplishment, than any achievement, than anything about us. We need to live a life marked by repentance. You need to live your life in such a way that people are more aware of the grace of God in your life than your own achievements. You need to live your life in such a way that people see the power of God before they see your own capacity or your own competencies. You need to live your life in such a way that people see Christ in you rather than your own charisma or your own personality. They need to see Jesus first and the work that he's done in your life first and the redemption that you've experienced first. Not anything about you because this life isn't about you. So John, in a lot of ways, he was the unique person to prepare the way for Jesus. But I think a lot of, in a lot of ways, he's preparing us for how to live that kind of life. And, and as we look at John's life and we see how he spoke and we see the boldness that he had, what we notice is that he has this boldness and conviction that actually led people to be confused about his identity. In verse 15, it says, as the people were in expectation, remember, they've been waiting 400 years to hear from God. They've been waiting hundreds of years for the Messiah. They're in expectation. And when we're in expectation, when we're in waiting, we begin to grow impatient and we begin to doubt and we begin to question All were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether whether he might be the Christ. Is he the Messiah? Is it John? And John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. This This is huge. Talk about humility. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so when we read this, we hear the heart of John and we see the humility and we see a life marked by repentance as he says, I am not worthy to even tie this man's shoe. So do not follow me, follow him. Do not point to me. I'm pointing you to him. And then we see at the end, 
this process after he says that Jesus, he'll come and he'll baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. And there's coming a day when Jesus will call out those who are genuine followers of him and he'll separate them from the others. And he will know, he'll look at the fruit and the evidence and he will know the ones whose lives were marked by repentance. And he will be able to spot out the ones who are just trying to market it for somebody else. And he'll know that those people never truly turned to him. So if you wanna know what it looks like, how does this play out? What does this look like to live a life marked by repentance? I wanna leave you with this. This is a statement from John the Baptist in John 3.30. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. He is strong and I'm weak. He is in control and I submit and I surrender to him. I repent, he is the one who forgives. So as we look at John's life, ultimately, when you live your life like John lived his life, as you proclaim repentance with every single step that you take, as you talk about the things of God and the redemption that you've experienced in every conversation that you have, when the the first thing that people notice about you is Jesus and not you, you'll start to live a little bit less for yourself and a little bit more for the one who offered you forgiveness and gave you a way to avoid that unquenchable fire. That's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the one who is good on his promises. He is the one who offers you forgiveness through this process that we call repentance. That's who Jesus is. That's the God we serve. And so the way I wanna end today, there is no doubt in my mind that there is repentance to be had in this room. There are things that we have to repent from. There are things that we have to kill in our life that we have to turn from and turn back to Jesus. And so I wanna encourage you. We're about, to, we're about to worship together. During that time, offer that up to God. Say, 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 God, please forgive me. I repent of X, Y, and Z in my life and I turn back to you. And if you need help doing that, if you need to confess something to a brother or sister in Christ that, that loves you, maybe you need to repent for the very first time and give your life to Jesus. Our care and prayer room is open and it is available. And there are people there that would love to help you through that process. Let me pray and just ask that God would would help us on this journey as we figure out who is Jesus to us. Father, God, we're so grateful. God, we're we're so thankful that you are a God who has made yourself known through your word. And so as we dive into your word, Father, would you just reveal yourself to us in some very real ways. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity of repentance. Yes, God, it can hurt at times. Yes, God, it can be difficult at times. But Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to receive forgiveness by turning from the things that are just going to harm us, that are just going to kill our soul. And Father, help us as we turn back to you. I pray for those that need to repent right now. Father, that you would meet them with grace, not with shame. Father, that you, would, that you would meet them with an embrace and they would know that your first response to them is love, not anger. Father, would you help them do that? Would you help us all repent? For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for watching this video. We'd love for you to like this video and leave a comment. We'd also like to encourage you to subscribe and click the bell so you never miss an upload from Foothills Church.
To learn more about FC, you can go to our website, foothillschurch.com, or by clicking the link in the description below.